This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and thanks for downloading the latest podcast from Rear Vision, the show that brings you the stories behind the news headlines. British politician Boris Johnson, himself the subject of many a headline, is about to get the job he's long coveted. There will be people who say that it's impossible. There will be people who say that the planes won't fly and there won't be clean drinking water and there won't be, so there won't be enough milk, solids and glucose to make and whey to make Mars bars. Well, I say nonsense, though. The planes will fly, there will be drinking water, whatever happens on November the 1st in this country, and uh, there will be milk, solids and glucose and whey for our Mars bars. Where there's a will, there's a way. British Prime Ministerial hopeful Boris Johnson, reassuring Conservative voters that nothing will change, even if, under his watch, the UK crashes out of the European Union on the 31st of October. He's been described as a self-absorbed sociopath and serial liar, an opportunistic egomaniac and a populist media confection. But in a week's time, he will probably be Britain's new Prime Minister. Supporters see him as funny, entertaining, a figure with wide popular appeal. But does he have what it takes to resolve the existential crisis into which the Brexit referendum has plunged his country? Born to parents Stanley and Charlotte, Boris is the eldest of four. Sister Rachel is a journalist and founding member of the Change UK party. Brother Joe is also a Conservative MP, while Leo presents serious programs on BBC Radio 4. Theirs was a privileged upbringing, but they're not typical blue bloods, leading them to feel like outsiders, fake society people, according to political journalist Marie Leconte. Yes, no, the Johnson family is completely, completely fascinating, actually. I think, you know, it doesn't kind of end with the Boris phenomenon. So he's got this father, Stanley, and his mother, Charlotte, who met when they were quite young and I think, you know, kind of lived in the US for a bit and then came back and then moved to Brussels. They're clearly sort of very privileged and come from, you know, a certain area of society, but because they're not the sort of family that's, you know, the proper posh, you know, that you can kind of like trace back for generations and generations and generations. They kind of feel that actually they're just grifters and they're kind of, you know, if anything, like fake society people. And so, I think, you know, if you think about Boris, what explains a lot of, I think, you know, the character we're kind of seeing now is the fact that, you know, especially Stanley always wanted the children. So Boris, Rachel, Joe and Leo to be very, very competitive. So both with each other and also with the world at large, they kind of, you know, grew up in this environment where they felt they had to fight for everything at all times. And Charlotte, the mother, went through quite severe mental health problems when the siblings were younger, which kind of probably partly explains, you know, why they're still so close, because they just had to take care of each other a lot of the time, basically. And yes, and, and it was just, you know, they kind of ended up bringing up, so like Charlotte and Stanley, this brood of quite odd people who are extremely, extremely driven and always talk about one another and are here to stay and desperate for power. Despite family idiosyncrasies, Boris had the traditional upper-class education, Eton and Oxford. Oh yes, no, absolutely. So Boris Johnson went to Eton and then went to Oxford University and I think he might have been the editor of the school newspaper and like, you know, kind of held a number of positions and at Oxford he was part of the Billingdon Club. He was in charge of the union for a while. So clearly, you know, that's nearly what you expect in Britain from, you know, especially from a Conservative MP trying to become Prime Minister. You know, there's a lot of MPs who've kind of followed that life path. 
But I think that, yeah, what's interesting is that if you actually talk to the kind of Johnsons, they feel that, you know, they were not that privileged and they were not, you know, they just work very hard and that's why and how they got to where they are now. Whereas, you know, like at the end of the day, he did kind of go through that in terms of education, in terms of the kind of, you know, like the way he could socialise at the time. And you know that, you know, he was with David Cameron at Oxford and I think they sort of knew each other, like Michael Gove as well. So he was definitely sort of part of that class from a very, very young age. And this is a debate, obviously, we've had and written quite a lot you know they they teach you how to be extremely self-confident they teach you how to you know talk about anything and everything at length even though you have no idea what you're talking about and the kind of you know the art of the waffle and they teach you to talk to people and they create those networks so in many many ways Boris Johnson absolutely is sort of like part of that very very privileged class of Britain. I think the most interesting thing about Mr Johnson's background is that quite clearly this is a family in which thinking and ideas and expressing ideas was very much encouraged. Mark Garnett is an expert on British politics at Lancaster University. And that, I think, sets him apart from a lot of the other people with a similar Eton-Oxford background, that it was an intellectual household in which he was brought up. And quite clearly, it's produced a couple of very talented individuals apart from himself. And his brother, Joe, is also has also served as a minister. That isn't an accident. This is a family with unusual advantages in terms of its position, but also quite remarkable advantages in terms of the kind of environments in which they were brought up. But it was an environment which was likely to produce almost a clever schoolboy who perhaps wouldn't have any incentive to grow up because of the comfort of his background and because from an early age he was clearly praised very much for his his quick wittedness those are things which perhaps might produce in the end a very substantial politician but equally it could be a, a way of almost arrested development in a person that the person is always waiting to win applause for being clever and not really ever being asked to produce anything of a more practical nature in 1987, Johnson became a graduate trainee at the Times, but was sacked after committing journalism's cardinal sin, inventing a quote for a story. Moving on to the Daily Telegraph, he was appointed to the Brussels Bureau, where he made a name for himself as a flamboyantly Eurosceptic writer. In that role, he quickly learned that the best way to keep his readers interested and entertained was to present a very negative view of the European Union. And because he quickly showed, even at university, he'd shown he had a great gift with words. So he was able to articulate the opposition antagonism towards the European project felt by the readers of the Daily Telegraph. He was able to articulate that in a way which entertained them as well as keeping up their kind of feeling of anger and resentment at this institution which apparently was holding Britain back and bullying Britain. The European project became the European Union in 1992-3. That was a source of incredible resentment within the Conservative Party. So although governments might have changed while Johnson was making his journalistic career, one thing remained constant, and that was that people on the right of politics in Britain tended to regard the European Union as a bogey figure, but also for the Conservatives in particular, it was a source of hatred because they thought that Mrs Thatcher had fallen from office because of her position on Europe, and it became almost a badge of honour amongst Conservatives to hate the European Union because of the fate of Mrs Thatcher. And Boris Johnson 
responded to that feeling and fed it through his journalism, which was eye-catching, far more flamboyant than most people who were peddling the same message. Back in London in the 1990s, Boris Johnson became a columnist and then editor of The Spectator, a weekly magazine regarded as the Bible of the Conservative Party and its supporters. At the same time, he became a well-known media figure, a celebrity really, especially through his appearances on a TV panel show called Have I Got News For You? And yeah, and I think everyone kind of love the persona of Boris. He is genuinely a very funny man and kind of, you know, bumbling along. And especially, I think, it was kind of happening around the time of the new Labour years, a time when mainstream Labour politics especially was very controlled, was very professional, was very slick, you know, as politicians kind of knowing exactly what they were doing and why they were doing it and so on. So I think it might have been quite refreshing for Boris Johnson to kind of then appear on the scene and he looked like he had a mop on his head and he had this kind of quite charming sort of like posh accent but while saying, you know, kind of complete rubbish but in a way that was really engaging. And that's kind of how I think he kind of like got into the public consciousness. Johnson's big breakthrough in the late 1990s came from his appearance on the satirical show Have I Got News For You, where he showed the country, a wider audience, the personality which he's really tried to keep ever since, and that is that of a bumbling performer who nevertheless was quite sharp-witted, amusing and endearing. And the secret of the success of this persona has been that it was pretty clear that he was a person pretending to be less clever than he really was. And what that does to the audience is make them actually think that the person is cleverer than he really is. So it's almost like dumbing down your personality in order to raise up your personality. And that really has persuaded many conservatives that he is a charismatic vote winner ever since he's traded on the personality that appeared in that one satirical show where his performance was very entertaining. But at the same time, it was pretty clear that he was trying to advertise himself rather than to just make the audience laugh. Boosted by his television fame, Boris Johnson stood successfully as Conservative candidate for the House of Commons in the safe seat of Henley in 2001 and again in 2005. But in March of 2007, he announced he would run against London's incumbent Labour Mayor, Ken Livingstone. Johnson's victories in 2008 and again in 2012 put him in the high-profile job for London's Olympics and made him an international figure. Hi, hello, I'm Boris Johnson, I'm the Mayor of London. As a kid, I used to love going to the British Museum and I would spend hours loitering in the Devine galleries looking at the Elgin marbles, the, the Tailginia as they called in Greece. There are so many unbelievable jewels in London and all sorts of things to enjoy. It's very, very important to uh, see the Tower of London, the biggest building that we have remaining from the Norman times. Boris Johnson from a promotional video series encouraging people to visit London. How well did he do as London's mayor? Timothy Bale is Professor of Politics at Queen Mary, University of London. He was persuaded, really, by the Conservative Party's leadership to run for the Mayor of London because they had simply run out of uh, any other plausible alternatives as far as they could see. I think David Cameron believed, uh, who was then the Prime Minister and the, the leader of the Conservative Party, that Boris Johnson 
because of the name recognition, did have a chance of beating Labour in the city. It proved a very shrewd decision by David Cameron. And many people also thought that it was one way of um, Cameron getting rid of Johnson from the Commons. I think it's fair to say that although there aren't any huge achievements to his name, he didn't make a mess of it in the way that some people assumed he might, partly because he was actually quite good at uh, delegating. He picked some quite good people around him. And partly, I think, also because the Mayor of London is a very limited role. It's mainly about transport and to some extent about policing. There is also the delivery of the Olympic Games. Now, he clearly didn't have very much really to do with that, but he certainly took the credit for it. At the end of the day, the position of London Mayor does not hold that much power. There's not a gigantic budget to it. That being said, I think, you know, if you just look at the PR side, because I think a lot of the job of being London Mayor is just to be the PR chief for London, kind of promote London around the world. And he did that really well. I know that, you know, because I'm French originally and everyone in my family in France knows who Boris Johnson is and they're not, they're clearly not mad about British politics. So he succeeded in that respect and kind of was the face of London during the Olympics, even though he's not the one who organised them and clearly that went really well but on the other hand there were so many gaffes and there was the fact that during the London riots he was out of the country and took several days to come back and basically had to be dragged back nearly physically sort of like across back to London even though the city was quite literally on fire at that point then there was the time he bought some water cannons for London I think after the riots and not unconnected but no one had told him apparently that you know water cannons cannot be used in London, so he had to sort of like sell those again. I think for scraps in Germany or something. So it was kind of endless gaffes, but at the same time, nothing I think ever properly, properly awful. You're listening to Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on RN Radio National. This program is about Boris Johnson, the gaff-prone but charismatic MP who's almost certain to be Britain's next Prime Minister. Johnson was re-elected to the House of Commons in 2015, at the beginning of David Cameron's second term as Prime Minister. The following year, after taking some time to announce his position, he came out on the leave side in the Brexit referendum. The last thing I wanted was to go against David Cameron or the government. But after a great deal of, of heartache, I don't think there's anything else I can do. I will be advocating vote leave. I would like to see a new relationship based more on trade, on cooperation, but as I say, with much less of this supranational element. So that's where I'm coming from. Most people didn't feel that Boris Johnson had a particular desperation for the UK to leave the EU, symbolised in some ways by you know him famously writing two possible newspaper articles, one for leave, one for remain, and only plumping for leave at the last minute. Having said that, he did have a record, like many Conservatives, of Euroscepticism, so it wasn't entirely surprising. But I think it's, I think, fairly common wisdom and probably correct that he, in the end, calculated that it would be best for his political reputation to plump for the Leave side, assuming that Leave wouldn't win, but that thereafter 
his role in the Leave campaign would actually stand him in good stead with Conservative Party members and some Conservative Party MPs and would therefore eventually help him into the leadership when David Cameron stepped down. But of course, <laughs> Leave won and uh, accelerated the uh, situation considerably. Following the victory of the Leave side, David Cameron resigned as Prime Minister and Boris Johnson was widely expected to succeed him. But almost immediately, his campaign for the leadership hit the rocks when the man who was going to run on a ticket with him, fellow MP Michael Gove, declared he was going for the leadership himself. This is our chance to think globally again, to lift our eyes to the horizon, to bring our unique British voice and values, powerful, humane, progressive, to the great global forums without being elbowed aside by a supranational body. That is the agenda for the next Prime Minister of this country. But I must tell you that having consulted colleagues and in view of the circumstances in Parliament, I have concluded that person cannot be me. Yes, and I think that this really was the moment where Mr Johnson's frailties as a politician were illustrated most vividly. He was very much a front runner when Mr Cameron stepped aside. And the reason this unravelled was because he was incapable of inspiring trust, even amongst people who'd worked with him in the Leave campaign. And the person who, in the end, completely derailed Johnson's campaign was Michael Gove, who'd also fought on the Leave side. And he did so because he had doubts about Johnson's leadership qualities. The new Prime Minister, Theresa May, appointed him Foreign Secretary. So that was... I think meant to be a sort of stroke of genius from Theresa May because the idea was, you know, Boris is a massive threat to the premiership because we all know he is desperate to be prime minister and will plot to get it, you know, is, is not kind of, you know, shameful about that. So the idea was, you know, foreign secretary is the ideal job for someone like this because, A, obviously you're in the cabinet and so you're in the tent, so it's harder for you to kind of create a rebellion. And B, on a very sort of blatant, obvious level, if you're foreign secretary, you have to be out of the country a lot of the time. And there was at least some of the thinking at the time behind that appointment of saying, you know, if we just physically keep him out of Westminster, like the postcode SW1, then he will be less likely to be able to plot. So I think it was, you know, it, it was not just a move out of the goodness of Theresa May's heart or, you know, kind of trying to bring the Conservative Party back together. And, yeah, and as a result, it, it was kind of similar, I think, to the London mayorship you know, in many ways, gaff after gaff after gaff. And there was a sense that he didn't really care about most issues. So there were leaks from kind of, you know, anonymous quotes from civil servants saying it is quite hard to brief him, that like we can't really give him anything that's too long because he's just not going to read it because he doesn't care. He frequently walks into meetings, clearly having not prepared anything. He offended various sort of like foreign countries by making ill-advised jokes. So it, it was definitely, you know, not a good sort of like tenure at the Foreign Office at all. Johnson's appointment as Foreign Secretary is one of the most fascinating ministerial assignments of recent times. On the surface, it would look like an amazing promotion for somebody who'd never held any kind of senior office beforehand in government, as opposed to in London. A tremendous compliment to his talents, you would have said. However, the position of Foreign Secretary in Britain has been in decline for a very long time. Just as Britain is no longer a major player in the world, the Foreign Secretary is not a major figure in diplomatic 
circles anymore. And if Britain is to play any kind of role in international politics, that role is played by the prime minister. So what Mrs May had done was to give Johnson a position with great prestige, but very little power. And in fact, it seems that it was a very clever and calculated move by Mrs May, because the other possibility was that Johnson would prove his unsuitability for high office by getting impatient and perhaps irritated by the limits of his position as foreign secretary and make mistakes. And I think this was a calculated risk by Mrs May. The problem, of course, is that Mr Johnson made mistakes which put other people in jeopardy and perhaps did very little to raise Britain's international prestige. But I think that in itself says something about the nature of British government now, that a position that used to be one of the great offices of state, which had to be held by somebody who had great and proven judgment, could be entrusted to somebody whose career really had been founded on a comedy programme on television who had very little track record of decision-making or attention to detail. So it says a lot more, I think, about British government than it says about Mr Johnson's capabilities. Following a cabinet meeting to endorse Theresa May's final Brexit agreement in July last year, Boris Johnson resigned as Foreign Secretary. In late May, after three failed attempts to get the deal through Parliament, Mrs May followed suit. I feel as certain today as I did three years ago, that in a democracy, if you give people a choice, you have a duty to implement what they decide. I have done my best to do that. But it is now clear to me that it is in the best interests of the country for a new Prime Minister to lead that effort. So I am today announcing that I will resign as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party on Friday the 7th of June. Boris Johnson immediately threw his hat into the ring, joining a crowded field of hopefuls. As the rounds of voting by fellow Conservative MPs unfolded, Johnson's starting position as frontrunner only improved. Three years ago, he didn't have enough support among his colleagues to run. How did he become the runaway favourite? Well, Boris Johnson is in the position he is in because, firstly, the Conservative Party is in desperate straits. It performed very, very badly in the last European Parliament elections, finishing well behind the Brexit Party. And there is a feeling in the Conservative Party that unless it can actually deliver Brexit, by the end of October, and unless it can be led by someone who is a genuine Brexiteer and someone with a big personality to match that of Nigel Farage, the leader of the Brexit party, then it is sunk. And Boris, in some ways, fulfills both of those criteria. He obviously is a charismatic personality and someone who you know you you could see being the antidote if you like to Nigel Farage and he is willing to promise Conservative Party MPs and Conservative Party grassroots members what they want on Brexit whether it's actually deliverable or not. Eventually this is a vote which is decided by the ordinary members of the party and so Mr Johnson had to be one of the two people who figured in the runoff for the leadership. Otherwise, ordinary members of the party simply wouldn't forgive MPs. So I think this is an instance of MPs swallowing their very deep misgivings about Mr Johnson. Of course, there are some genuine enthusiasts for Mr Johnson, but they're not very many. The other ones are people who are saying, well, we've got to at least give the normal party members a chance to decide whether he's fit to be leader. 
And so it's almost an abdication of responsibility by MPs. I think it's safe to guess that if MPs had been voting of, the, of their own assessment of the characters, then Mr Johnson would not have been in the final two. But people from across the party, and this is why people are saying that Mr Johnson has been able to attract people of all kind of different views within the party. In fact, what has happened is people from across the party in the ranks of the, the MPs have taken the same decision, which is we don't like Mr Johnson, we don't trust him, we think he's unprincipled and an opportunist. However, we can't stand in the way of the party members and the party members love him or at least the majority of them love him. And if we deny them the chance to vote on his credentials as leader, the party membership will never forgive us and will probably be deselected from our seats. Now is the time to unite this country and unite this society. And we cannot begin that task until we have delivered on the primary request of the people the big thing that they asked us to do. After three years and two missed deadlines, we must leave the EU on October the 31st. Ultimately, after weeks of public meetings featuring Boris Johnson and his opponent Jeremy Hunt, it will be the 160,000 ordinary members of the Conservative Party who choose Britain's next Prime Minister. Everything to do with Brexit, beginning with the initial referendum result, has proved unpredictable. But assuming, as expected, Boris Johnson does win the vote, what might lie ahead? No deal is a distinct possibility, not least because it's actually the default option right now. Unless Parliament actually votes to block it, then it will happen. And there is some doubt as to whether there are enough kind of procedural possibilities to allow Parliament to block Britain crashing out of the European Union without a deal. Having said that, many people feel that, you know, if Parliament wants to do that, it will find a way to do that, at which point what happens? It's possible that Boris Johnson could call an election, even if one isn't, as it were, sprung on him, or it's possible that he might pivot away and try and get some kind of deal. I think really the rationale, as far as Boris Johnson is concerned, is being prepared to walk away from the table will, he hopes, persuade Brussels to actually give the UK a slightly better deal than the one it would give um, Theresa May, and he will therefore be able to come back and get that deal through Parliament, even though perhaps the, the changes are actually fairly cosmetic. The plan then would be you know, to go to the country having delivered Brexit and get another five-year mandate. That's the dream scenario, I guess, for Boris Johnson. Once he's won the prize, what happens next? And there is nothing in Mr Johnson's record to give us any clear steer on what he would do subsequent to becoming prime minister. And this is particularly worrying because whoever becomes prime minister in the current circumstances faced by Britain has got to have very nimble footwork, a great deal of skill, has got to have a great deal of credibility at home and abroad. Now, Mr. Johnson, I think, has none of those things. And the real concern is that once he gets the prize and receives the cheers of his supporters, he'll sit down and say, right, well, what do we do next? There's no evidence in his performance during the leadership hustings that he has any plan beyond the possibility that he will 
go to Brussels and somehow charm people who already dislike him quite intensely, charm them into making concessions which Theresa May, with all her careful diplomacy, was not able to get. All he cares about is winning the position that he's coveted for so very long. And after that, he's hoping that by bluster and charm, he will somehow get his way on those things he cares about. I'm afraid the big fear with Mr Johnson is there aren't many things that he really does care about. I do not think his premiership will be a successful one. I do not think it will be an especially long one either. And I think that he will probably have to call a general election at some point. And as for Brexit, again, he has been trying to say what people want to hear to too many people. On the one hand, privately, he says that he does not want a no-deal Brexit. But on the other, publicly, he has said, we are leaving the EU. Was it do or die, I think, was the phrase on the 31st of October. But then when you take into account the fact that every single expert has said that, you know, there is no way at this point that we can leave the EU on the 31st of October with a deal. There is so much legislation to pass with the House of Commons and there's just physically not enough time to leave with a deal on the 31st of October. And yet it's said that he does not want to leave with no deal, but also it's said that he does not want to leave after the 31st of October. So the only way I'm seeing here is a no deal Brexit or an election. Again, as ever with Boris Johnson, you can never really know, I think. Political journalist Marie LeConte. The other people you heard were Mark Garnett from Lancaster University and Tim Bale from Queen Mary, University of London. Isabella Tropiano is the sound engineer for this rear vision. Bye from Kerry Phillips. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.